Great. We will get started. Okay. As you've just heard, um, Bulgaria... <laughs> Start again. <laughs> As you've just... <laughs> Third time lucky. Here we go. Okay, I have the whole evening, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wow. Hello there, folks, and welcome back to the Europelex podcast. I am still Ewan Healy, and I think with me is Gabriel Hedengren. Yeah, I'm still Gabriel Hedengren. How are you, Ewan? <laughs> I'm okay, thank you. Enjoying spring now that it's here. Um, how about you? I mean, spring-ish, I guess. It's been typically Northern European with 20, 23 degrees one day, freezing, snowing the next, but... Yeah, it's going in the right direction anyway. I'm happy about the clocks going forward as well. Some more sunlight in the evenings. Controversial opinion, I know. We'll see how long that that lasts. Yeah, maybe the last year of the of the daylight savings. Maybe this year. But they talk about that every year, so I wouldn't be I wouldn't be so sure. I have to say, you can tell that we both live in the the Anglosphere because every week on this podcast we talk about the weather. Um <laughs> We, we fulfill every British stereotype there. I mean, there's not much else that, that goes on in your day-to-day. There, there is literally nothing else to talk about in life. Yeah, so, literally nothing uh, else. I mean, except, obviously, um, electoral politics. <laughs> <laughs> what a great segue there, Gabriel. I, of course, we've got another great episode for you today. Loads of news to talk about. Obviously, you'll have heard History Corner last week, all the way from Russia, um, but this week we're bringing back to the present day to talk about the electoral results from this weekend in Bulgaria. And I'm going to be with political scientists at Sofia University and uh, Europolex colleague uh, Teodori Yovcheva to discuss the results there. But first, a little message from us on how you can support us and our headlines from across the continent. Europolex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we always want to do more. We've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and much more via our Patreon. Access all that from as little as just one euro per month. So don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. This week's headlines. So we're going to kick off talking about the results of the elections that occurred in Greenland. Uh, So Greenland, as you'll know, is an autonomous territory uh, that held parliamentary elections this past Tuesday on the 6th of April, as well as municipal elections uh, at the same time. So the elections happened sort of against the backdrop of an ever-looming independence from Denmark and uh, the left-wing Inuit Atakatigit won most of the seats in the election and toppled the traditionally heavyweight governing party, the centre-left, Siumut. That's linked, or you can sort of um, link it to the, the SND, so the centre-left group in the European Parliament. Greenland is trying to diversify its economy, which is something both these parties, so the centre-left and the um, and the left-wing party have put on their manifestos as sort of important objectives for Greenland. And this is seen as something that's needed in order for independence to be feasible and, and desirable. The political work towards independence in the form of 
uh, constitution drafting is already ongoing and it's scheduled to be presented to the new parliament uh, next year in 2022. So Inuit Atakachigit was able to capitalize on the resistance to a huge mining project using uranium as its byproduct in uh, southern Greenland and their very um, vocal stance against this project um, is seen as the main reason for their victory. The main loser of the election was uh, the liberal and unionist Demokratit, burdened by its participation in the Siumut-led government the previous electoral term and their support uh, for this unver- very unpopular mining project. So yeah, um, really monumental elections um, in Greenland and it'll be uh, fascinating to follow um, what impacts that has, um, and sort of yet another independence um, movement to to put on uh, our list. Yeah, absolutely. Lots to watch there. This could be a big decade for independence movements, depending how things go. Um, moving on to other electoral news, on April the 4th, Bulgaria had its parliamentary elections, as we mentioned above, which were full of surprises. Starting off, we've got this, the incumbent governing centre-right GERB um, of Prime Minister Boyko Borisov uh, lost a significant number of votes, but still managed to hold on to being the largest party in the parliament, with around 70 MPs in the 240-seat parliament at the time of recording. That's uh, on the current seat projections. Meanwhile, the centre-left Bulgarian Socialist Party that won 27% of the vote back in 2017 collapsed into a third place with only 15%, causing many voters to call for the resignation of the party chair, Kornelia Ninova, who we talk about a little bit later on in the podcast when I talk to Teodora. The new populist party ITN, or There Is Such a People, of Bulgarian late-night talk show host Slavi Trifonov rose to prominence during the anti-Borisov protests in 2020 and reached the second place in Sunday's election with 17% of the vote. Furthermore, two other protest parties managed to jump over the 4% hurdle threshold. Those two alliances are called Democratic Bulgaria and ISMV, or in English, Stand Up, Mafia Get Out, which I think is a great name. (laughs) They got 9.4% and 4.7% respectively. That means the anti-establishment bloc now holds the largest number of seats in Parliament, if you add those three parties together, with a little over 90 seats. The time of recording, it's still up to the President to decide when to call the first session of Parliament and who to give the first mandate for forming a government to, but it's likely to be Gerb as it's the largest party. If they fail, however, the next option is ITN, and if they fail as well, which is probably likely as the coalition negotiations will be difficult, the parties will likely have to agree with the president to enter new elections. For more information about all this, wait on to listen to me and Teodora talk about this, particularly looking at the futures of Trifonov's party and potential coalitions. We're now going to visit one of Europe's microstates, so even less populated than Greenland, that is namely Tamarino, uh, where the parliament elected the two new um, captains regent uh, this week, and that's what the heads of state and government um, are called. They have a term length of just six months, and the two that have been chosen are Giancarlo Venturini from the center-right Samaritanese Christian Democratic Party and Marco Nicolini of the left-wing um, Rete movement. So they join a, a very long list, as you can imagine, of, of captains regent uh, serving those six-month um, terms. And uh, to be more exact, uh, the system of dual heads of state and government with six-month terms uh, goes back to 1243. It's a bit mad, that is, to be the something like the the 1600th-ish pair of people to take control of the country. Yeah. Must be a lot of pressure. Must be a lot of pressure. (laughs) 
Speaking of head of states and, of course, people under pressure, the parliament in Kosovo just elected a new president and they will definitely be hoping to last a little bit longer than six months. Following the constitutional crisis last year that led to snap elections being called, Albin Kurti's LVV skyrocketed to a whopping 50% of the vote on the February 14th elections, easily winning, of course. And while his government formation has been relatively smooth, relying on the support of uh, only a few minority parties, the indirect election of the president has been quite suspenseful. To be elected president of Kosovo, one needs to get the support of 80 of 120 members of the parliament in the first or the second round of voting. And then if that's not reached, you just need a simple majority in a third round. However, according to a ruling by the constitutional court, at least 80 of the parliament's 120 MPs must must be present for the vote to be valid. If no majority or no quorum is reached, then snap parliamentary elections are triggered because the job of president must be filled and it's indirectly elected through the parliament. With many major opposition parties boycotting the vote, the path to the election was you know, very narrow and got even narrower when LVV tried to pass electoral reform together with the presidential vote at the same time, which obviously angered opposition members of Parliament. Two days and multiple votes and postponements later, the drama-filled Kosovar parliament elected Vyosha Osmani, um, the original favourite, as the fifth president of Kosovo with 71 votes in a third round. So just passing the simple majority, not the supermajority required, making the Osmani-Kurti coalition extremely successful as we'd all expected. Obviously, for more information on this, you should head to our website where there is an article written by our own podcast managing editor, Polychronis Karampalas. Um, and if you thought promoting our own website was a shameless plug, let me tell you that Polychronus not only approved this part of the script, but he actually wrote this part of the script so that he could plug himself. What a what a shameless plug. Now let's go to the Netherlands. So in our last episode, we discussed um, the results of the recent elections there right after they occurred. And anyone following uh, European politics uh, will know that there's been a lot of drama and um, back and forth um, since then and a lot still seems to be up in the air. It's still very much ongoing. And many are saying that this is the deepest political crisis the country has seen in in more than two decades. A week after the election, which was on March 17th, there was a piece of paper uncovered uh, with controversial information that was accidentally photographed. And the paper said that uh, a function elsewhere for center-right CDA MP Peter Omsicht was discussed in talks for a new government. And this uh, Mr. Omsicht, um, he's a very critical MP uh, known for his investigations into political scandals, most notoriously the childcare benefit scandal that brought down the previous government back in January. Um, so all party leaders, including uh, Mark Rutte, uh, denied having brought up Omsicht's position in their discussions in this government formation. But documents demanded by parliament showed that Rutte was the only one who actually did, uh, confirming then that he lied in his response to, to the revelation of this document. Uh, and this very much strengthened the suspicions that Rutte um, wants to silence or even get this critical MP out of parliament. So that was uh, sort of the narrative that, that came away from that. And this led to a motion of no confidence that was tabled on April 1st. And if successful, Rutte would have been forced to quit um, as prime minister with immediate effect. And in the debate sort of preceding this uh, monumental vote, his position worsened, um, if you can believe, when parliament suspected him of telling even more lies. So uh, this debate lasted long into the night. Uh, and the motion of no confidence narrowly failed. So he sort of hang on, hung on by by his teeth. Um, 
and Kertagi government parties, Liberal D66, centre-right CDA and the centre-right CU, uh, feared a constitutional crisis uh, and therefore voted, voted against the, the motion and tabled an alternative motion of condemnation, which only advised Rutte to quit. Um, so that was uh, a real compromise. This motion was approved by historic majority, but Rutte didn't resign, um, saying he will continue. And days after this, the Christian Union uh, party announced that they will not enter or support a new government uh, with Rutte as prime minister, saying that um, this scandal is one of too many and referring to, to earlier scandals that um, the prime minister Possible all with. Um, so with that decision, there is now a majority against a new term for Rutas PM, and uh, it's still unknown what positions D66 and CDA will take. Uh, so that will uh, determine quite a lot in how things move forward. This sort of chaos in, in parliament has obviously spilled out uh, into the electorate, and a poll by uh, Invandag shows that approval ratings for Rutte have collapsed uh, to only 25%, which is um, quite low for him. Uh, and that's a fall of 29 points from 54% a week earlier. So the, his approval rating basically halved in just in just a week. 61% of Dutch voters want Rutte to resign as prime minister after the scandal. So he's very much still in the position, but very much challenged, both politically in parliament, but also in terms of um, what uh, the electorate um, are saying. So despite all this chaos, uh, it's led to a gridlock situation where liberal VVD party are still clinging on to Rutte and they're obviously the biggest party still in parliament so it's still very unclear how they're gonna um, sort out the situation but it's not really looking good for uh, for Rutte at the moment. So yeah, very dramatic um, fallout um, of, of an election there and we'll obviously keep you posted on uh, on any major developments um, in this and obviously it'll be interesting to track the polls as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's another article on our website um, about this uh, very issue to go a little bit deeper into what we've just talked about as we speak. So do get on to read that. We've been talking in the quote-unquote office this week about how it just seems like an episode or a series of House of Cards, everything that's going on in uh, the Netherlands at the moment. We've had a, an American one. We've had a British one. Maybe it's time for a Dutch series of House of Cards based around the life of Mark Rutte. And just the amount of parties as well in Parliament just makes it even more intricate and um, and, and crazy. I mean, just the fact that whenever there's a twist or turn, you have, um, you know, uh, at least five six leaders uh whose <laughs> whose decisions and um and um, talking points really matter to to how things are gonna proceed so yeah um very fascinating to, to to follow for sure yeah absolutely and i look forward to the next election that takes place in the netherlands in a few months time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now that's enough on the netherlands because we're gonna like i say we're gonna have a lot to talk about with them in the future we're gonna go to slovakia where another government is in crisis this week where standoff, as many of you will know, um, caused by the government's decision to purchase Russian Sputnik vaccine ended just at the end of last week after Prime Minister Igor Matovich stood down, resigning, changing places with his finance minister, Eduard Heger. The new government, officially appointed by President Ruzana Kaputova on Thursday, April the 1st, retains most of the old ministers, uh, with the exception of the health minister, that had to quit over the Sputnik debacle. Matovich had offered to switch places with Heger a few days earlier as a compromise to people calling for him to resign. Heger also obviously hails from Matovich's centre-right Olano, with the other two main parties of the coalition, the National Conservative SAS and the centre-right Zazuti. 
both having threatened that they would withdraw their support to the coalition if Matovich himself did not step down. The crisis had been brewing for a month after the former health minister moved ahead with ordering Sputnik doses without consulting coalition partners or the European Union. You reminded that the Sputnik vaccine is still not approved by the European Medical Agency as well. So that's some example of some of the vaccine politics that we're going to be seeing a lot more of over the coming months and years, especially as we've all been seeing the stories around the AstraZeneca vaccine and as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the other vaccines from both France and Italy arrive in Europe in the coming months. So now let's um, go to our favorite thing in this whole wild world, UN, and that is uh, opinion polls. So in Germany, uh, the governing centre-right CDU slash CSU coalition led by uh, Angela Merkel has taken a severe hit in polls after several of its MPs were implicated in a bribery scandal relating to face mask procurement. Uh, and as the country struggles with um, yet another COVID wave, that's having um, a big impact on the polling. So in our polling average, CDU has fallen from 36% in January down to just 26% now, uh, so a 10 percentage point drop. Uh, the main beneficiaries of this um, have been um, Alliance 90 uh, slash the Greens. Uh, that are now at 22% uh, in the polls. Uh, the Liberal Free Democratic Party um, have also gone up uh, and are now 10% in our average. As you'll know, um, elections are just five months away in the country. So Germany's political scene is definitely starting to look much more competitive. Uh, I mean, it's not uh, a crazy thought now that the Greens will um, challenge CTU on uh, for that top spot of largest party. There are just a few percentage points uh, between them now. Yeah, absolutely. A really interesting scenario in Germany, particularly as we could be seeing uh, AFD fall down below FDP for the first time in several years in an election result. Lots to look out for there. Lots of margin of error quibbles to excite us polling nerds. Next up, the Netherlands. Um, we had our first poll since the national parliament election in March. These recent dramatic episodes in parliament did not just have an effect on Rutte's approval, as we've just mentioned, but also they had an effect on his party. His liberal VVD fell from 34 seats to a projected 28 in the latest Pile poll with gains distributed across various other parties. Even more dramatically, Pile conducted a scenario poll if the aforementioned Peter Omzicht formed his own party separate from CDA, and an Omzicht party would surge to first place with 27 seats, pushing Rutter's VVD down to 26 seats, halving the CDA's representation itself to just eight seats. This is, of course, just one poll, but that's what this segment's about, those one polls that make us all go, ooh. Yes, we love um, we love making uh, big conclusions from, from singular polls. But then obviously, um, we do combine all of it in... in- uh, on our website and, and into our Europe-wide projection that we'll talk about later. Um, meanwhile, an Ireland Thinks poll for Ireland showed the centre-left Social Democrats reaching an all-time high of 7%, uh, making them the fourth largest party. Another poll by Red Sea only showed uh, them having 5%, uh, though still ahead of their fellow S&D member, Labour, uh, which has traditionally been the main party of Irish social democracy. Uh, so very much their fight um about who's going to take that that role going forward of being the main centre-left um, party. So definitely will be interesting to see if um, if they will continue to pull uh, up towards 7% or higher, or if that was just a blip, but uh, something to watch out for. Absolutely. And there's been some chat in the Irish media over the last few weeks about an electoral alliance or perhaps a, a merging of Social Democrats and the Labour Party, who were originally the party that the Social Democrats split from. 
So there's a lot to keep an eye on there. Again, for those of us who like following centre-left politics in Western Europe. Now, at the same time as all of this, a Factum Interactive poll in Latvia has shown rising support for the right-wing Look Party, which reached 6%, passing the 5% threshold for the first time. So that would have the right-wing party entering parliament for the first time. Interesting to watch there. And finally, we have polling from Armenia. So Armenia is one of those countries where um, we're not uh, spoiled with with polls, even though there's a lot uh, going on. And a new poll from MPG has shown durable support for the governing centrist My Step Alliance. Um, although support is down from its sort of astronomical landslide of 70% in 2018, it's still very much um, dominant. Uh, it's definitely taken a hit because of uh, Armenia's unsuccessful military conflict with Azerbaijan uh, last year. Uh, however, they still have 57% in uh, in this poll, which is a 46-point lead over its nearest challenger. So that's obviously huge, and it's not uh, currently threatened at all in that respect. Um, the alliance's leader, uh, Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan, uh, has recently said he will step down ahead of uh, upcoming SNAP elections uh, this June. So um, while this, this sort of um, downward trend, uh, everything points to it having yet another election where, where it dominates. Um, but yeah, we'll obviously keep you posted for the coming months and, and in June to see uh, what the actual result will be. Now we've looked at a few national polling highs and lows. It's time to take a zoom out and look at one of the cornerstones of our work here at EuropeLex, our monthly European Parliament seat projection. Yeah, we're the only organisation in Europe to produce a monthly projection of what would happen if there was an EP election tomorrow. And boy, was this month a real doozy. Our March projection for the European Parliament is up on our website now, so you can go and have a look at it yourself. But I'm going to give you a few of the headline facts from it. Despite still leading in the European Parliament, the European People's Party, the centre-right group, have taken a big hit, with them now projected to gain just 22.5% of seats. That would be its smallest seat share in EU Parliament election history. So what's the setback here? I'm sure many of you are shouting at your headphones as you listen to this podcast now to say that it's because of Fidesz, who have obviously left the EPP, as we talked about last episode, and they left before they were kicked out, which has massively weakened the EPP delegation by around 10 seats. Also an important factor is, as we've mentioned, the decline of Germany's CDU-CSU alliance, a very influential EPP party in the polls. However, it would still remain as the lead party in the European Parliament with 159 out of 705 seats compared to its 187 seats gained after the May 2019 election. So the centre-left S&D would come second, according to our projection, with 151 seats, uh, which is uh, a very small gain of three seats compared to 2019. Um, They're followed by uh, the Liberal Renew with 93 seats, uh, which is four seats less than 2019. Um, The right-wing ID group continues its subtle decline and is projected at 74 seats. Uh, with some uh, pronounced losses for um, Lega in Italy and AfD in Germany contributing to that. ECR sees its projected power increase to 74 seats due to gains in Italy and Romania, and the Greens are projected as declining from 5th to 6th place with 52 seats. The left uh, party trails just after the Green Party with 51 seats, uh, despite seeing a significant increase in seats compared to 2019. Um, so long-term 
trend is up for the left, but a, a short-term sort of decline or a stabilization. Uh, meanwhile, the non-inscrits see a significant rise uh, as the flip side of EPP setback, as you can imagine, since Fidesz joined the grouping of unaffiliated parties, uh, but also due to gains from centrist uh, unaffiliated parties in both Poland and Bulgaria. Um, so for more on the trends in uh, projected MEP seats since May 2019, a sort of more granular analysis of the projections results um, on a pan-European level and at a national level, you can of course check out our website. Uh, we can also delve into our unfolding and continuously updated EU election projection uh, for 2024. That was it for our news and now it's time for you interview with Teodora. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email at podcast at europelex.eu. Listeners have just heard Bulgaria had some elections this week, which held some really interesting stories. And so with me today is a political scientist researching populism in Eastern Europe at Sofia University and, of course, Europolex's own Bulgaria correspondent, Theodora Yovcheva. Theodora, welcome to the podcast. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to have you on. So let's just jump right in with the big story, of course, which everyone is talking about from this election, which is the absolute explosion in support for um, There Is Such a People, um, ITN, who competed in their first election and received 17.7% of the vote. Could you just tell us a little bit about where the parties come from and, and where it gets its support from? Yes, the party was established by the popular singer and TV host Slavi Trifonov. He's one of the most popular showmen in Bulgaria. He has uh, his own uh, TV show and his political ambitions actually began with organizing a referendum for change in the electoral system and the reduction of the state uh, party funding. The referendum insisted on the replacement of the proportional system with the majority majoritarian one. Actually, it was considered in the parliament, but not actually held. And uh, this is the point uh, where it acted as a springboard for Trifonov, because he blamed the political elites as uh, self-centered and uh, not respecting the will of the people. Later, during the campaign, I mean the last campaign of parliamentary election, he refused participation in any political debates. Not a single one, not a member of his party, not he. And surprisingly, it boosted the support for there are such people. He succeeded to attract mainly young people and people who feel that they are not represented by the political elites. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. And a lot of people have obviously drawn connections between this and a similar success of another TV star um, of Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine. And like Zelensky, Trifonov obviously has seen great success, um, but largely at the expense of the traditionally dominant center ground parties, which in Bulgaria are GERB and the Bulgarian Socialist Party. Is this all down to sort of perceived corruption or misrepresentation by those two parties? Or is there something else? Well, I think it's the 
the last you say, the misrepresentation, because his rhetoric is mostly about the political elites who do not represent the will of the people. This is uh, the, the main uh, populist trait. As the will of the people, he understands only the topics of the referendum, cutting the state uh, party funding and replacing the proportional electoral system with majoritarian. Actually, the corruption is not the strongest trait in his rhetoric, although it's not absent. But um, he represents, he and his team, as the genuine, genuinely uh, representatives of the will of the people. Yeah, it's really interesting. Let's talk for a moment about the socialists, because, you know, we talk for a long time in Europe about the populists taking votes from the centre-left in Western Europe. But we're starting to see here um, and in a few other places where the, the sort of rise of influential populists um, like Trifonov taking votes from the centre-left in Eastern Europe. What is going wrong for, for the socialists that, you know, perhaps isn't going as wrong for parties like GERB? Why have the socialists been hit that much harder? Hmm. It's a tough question, but I have to start... Uh from the, the beginning. Uh, BSP, which are the socialists in Bulgaria, suffered their most severe defeat now. I mean, this is even the most severe than in 1997 when the country was practically bankrupted as a result of their government. Even then, they succeeded to gain more votes. One of the problems with BSP is that the party relates mostly on older people who feel sentiments toward the communist regime because they have been young there, they have been socialized, uh, politically socialized there, uh, then, and they feel that now their life standard has deteriorated during the democratic changes and um, democratic regime. Inevitably, the group of these people is shrinking because of the normal life reason. The young people um, come into politics, they uh, have been socialized in completely different uh, uh, obstacles and circumstances. So the nature of the Bulgarian electorate is changing. Also, BSP has serious inter-party problems as uh, their leader, Cornelia Ninova, removed key people in the party. I will give you an example. She did it uh, with um, Georgi Gergov. He uh, was uh, sub-leader of the party structure in, the, uh, in Plovdiv. Plovdiv is uh, the second or third, according to different uh, statistics, uh, biggest town in Bulgaria. And uh, by removing him, the whole structure was cutted from uh, from BSP because they um, protested in front of the party central, but Ninova refused to to hear them, and uh, she did this with many sub leaders in uh, in BSP, and this is how actually she uh, divided the party, and the party was not uh, in a good condition for the for the elections. Also, Ninova. Let's say she was, uh, she is the first um, female leader of uh, the socialist, but um, she got a firm nationalistic um, turn. Uh, for example, she was against the uh, Istanbul Convention in Bulgaria, and as you know, the PES actually insisted on um, accept, Bulgaria accepting this uh, this convention, and this is just one of uh, the examples of the, um, the changed nature of the Socialist Party. Yeah, some really interesting divisions there. I mean, that clearly this isn't going to be the end of the problems for the BSP. And if, if anything, it you know, could go a lot worse from here. 
let's just talk again about Trifonov, uh, as I think everyone is at the moment. Simply, will he be the next head of government, or do we think that um, Borisov uh, or Gerb, another Gerb leader, are going to be able to hold on to power, maybe work together, or, or is that out of the question? I think neither of them. Actually, Boyko Borisov, in my opinion, would not want to rule without a strong support. Given the results, Trifonov will have to form a coalition if he wants to govern. It seems like the only suitable partners for him are stand-up mafia out or Ispravise Motrivan and Democratic Bulgaria. But uh, even so, he will need to find a fourth partner for a stable parliamentary majority. So he will need to do it either with BSP, GERP or DPS. But uh, during the, the campaign, he refused cooperation strongly with these three parties. Also, the other partners exclude the possibility to govern with GERP or DPS. And in the end, he will need to govern with BSP, which, in my, in my opinion, could turn to be damaging for his rating, because he strictly said that he would not uh, govern with the parties of the status quo. So the best uh, move for him will be to wait for the early election, and then he, in my opinion, again, he will uh, receive uh, much uh, higher support and maybe he would have not the majority, but at least he would have a majority with only one coalitional partner, which would be more acceptable for his uh, voters and for the voters of the other uh, political party. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it might be yet another country where we're seeing extra early elections to try and uh, get a stabilized political system, you know, as, as we've had a, quite a few of those across Europe this year. What, if he got into government, do you think would be the legacy? You've talked, obviously, about the move against proportional representation, changing the electoral system. You've talked about sort of tackling, you know, to some extent, things like corruption or trying to re-represent um, voters in a new way. But what about things like um, the European Union? What about things like the coronavirus crisis? What do you think that Trifonov would be able to do differently if he would be able to do anything differently at all? I'm afraid even to think about it because uh, about the COVID crisis, he gave uh, signals that he doesn't believe in restrictive measures. Also, he doesn't believe in uh, taking any measures preventing the spread of the virus. Actually, members of his team openly provoked the health authorities by um, saying that uh, where are the bodies? We, we, uh, they said toward the health, uh, the health authorities, you say that if we do not um, uh, keep the measures, we will have uh, the Italian or uh, Spanish scenario, where are the bodies, which was very provocative. And the uh, health authorities uh, say that if we hadn't keep the measures, the measures maybe we will see such a scenario. And um, this is an uh, area which, in my opinion, will suffer most of his rule because uh, he already gave signals that um, he doesn't respect COVID uh, measures. Uh, but about the EU, this is very interesting because traditionally the EU enjoys uh, high levels of approval in Bulgaria. This is mostly because uh, Bulgarian wants to achieve the life standard of uh, West Europeans. In Bulgaria, when you say that uh, something is European, this is uh, synonyms of good, of quality, and uh, something reasonable. 
Given this, I don't think that Trifonov will pursue any anti-European rhetoric or politics because it will be unpopular in Bulgaria and he wants to be popular. Maybe he would say something like, we can have more or we can gain more from you, but I don't think uh, he would uh, openly uh, use rhetoric against EU or NATO. I think that's a really interesting um, point to highlight, obviously, because it's a slightly different form of populism to what we've seen in a lot of other European countries, because obviously it's a sort of content with the European settlement, but disagreement with the um, domestic political elites as opposed to the international ones. And that's a really interesting uh, scenario to be able to watch unfold. And like you say about the, the coronavirus pandemic, there's a lot at stake as to whether Trifonos is successful either here or in the next uh, snap election, which might take place later this year. Yes, we Bulgarian political scientists, I mean, do not exclude such a scenario because um, when we see the constellation of the political forces or the projected seats in the parliament, it's evident that uh, there will be uh, a need of coalition and um, a big coalition with three, at least three partners and one supporting uh, one supporter in the parliament and. Till, uh, till recently in Bulgaria, when you say coalition, it was symbol of something unreasonable, something dirty and uh, unacceptable because we had the, the last uh, three party coalitions uh, we, uh, we had was the in between um, 2005 and 2009, which and then BSP, DPS and uh, NDSV. Uh, govern the country, and uh, that was uh, the rule, uh, a rule which was very unpopular in Bulgaria. The coalition was perceived as uh, unclean, and um, this is the reason when uh, why the coalitions in Bulgaria are difficult because the public opinion, until recently, was against them. Yeah, one thing that we've seen, obviously, in this election is the decline of VMRO, VMRO the supporting party of the of GERB in the previous parliament um, and they lo- lost representation in the parliament completely and slipped through uh, the bottom of the threshold and the same with another right-wing party of Volia. Why are those two parties both on the sort of conservative right side of the political spectrum, why have they slipped out of parliament this time? Well I think the two parties are very different and I will explain why. Volia or Will in English is a party uh, created by a businessman, Veselin Mareshki. Uh, he, uh, he is based uh, in uh, Varna, the sea capital uh, of Bulgaria, and um, his business is uh, pharmaceutical and um, gas stations. So his party was based on the money from these businesses and the people which could be uh, potential clients. Uh, who were potential clients actually in uh, of his business and um, it is one of the short-lived projects which we have witnessed a lot in Bulgaria. Uh, before Vola there was a, uh, another party, Bulgaria without, without censorship or Bulgaria bez censura. It was again short-lived party established by a popular journalist uh, Nikolai Barekov. So Vola for me is just the next formation in the line the next uh, formation established by a businessman or a popular uh, person uh, attacking the political elites and then fading away. 
The problem with VMRO is different because they were part of the Alliance Obedinani Patrioti or United Patriots and um, the three parties of this alliance run separately in these elections. And uh, if we summarize the result the results obtained by them, we will see that they would be able to enter the parliament. Actually, Vemero was on the line uh, to enter the parliament. And if we sum it with Bola's uh, result or with Attacker result or with, uh, it was Bola and NFSB actually was coalition. So I think the problem with them came because they didn't run together. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah, like you say, two very different things, but I guess symptoms, both of them in their collapse in the of in the uh, the nature of the political system in the the quick changes and the breakup of uh, alliances that see things fall apart. Um, overall, I think a really interesting election that we've seen loads of little stories and one that I think we'll all be paying attention to across Europe and what it means for the future of Bulgaria, um, especially as it looks like things might not settle down very quickly. Thank you very much, Theodora, for coming on the podcast. This was really, really interesting to talk about. Um, and I hope we've enlightened a few more of our followers about a country that isn't talked about as much within the EU27. Thank you. It was very uh, pleasant for me to speak with you. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe and of course follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. You can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media and at Europe underscore Lex on Instagram. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karimpolis. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peñorios and Leon Lisener. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kakouris, and Guillem Ferreira de Senda. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do couldn't be possible without our fantastic supporters on Patreon. Sweet. That's all we need to do for this week. Whoop, whoop. <laughs>